It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This episode of Demystify was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, you can head over to Patreon and check out Demystified Podcast, or even just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. It really does help the show. Now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. Amundsen, Scott, Shackleton, the big three of Antarctic exploration. But beyond those, there are others who are equally deserving of praise and reward in the form of recognition and remembrance, but seldom get it. If you ask some, there's actually a fourth member of that pantheon of elites, the subject of today's episode. 1947, Australia. The last of the research from one of the great but forgotten expeditions of the heroic age is being published. The man who led that expedition that collected the data, the expedition itself being referred to as the greatest and most consummate expedition ever to sail to Antarctica, is a professor at the University of Adelaide. He's outlived all his contemporaries. Scott died in the field in 1911. Shackleton's heart gave out in 22. Amundsen disappeared in 28. This man, who few would know of today, outside of his home down under, is one of the few to make it out of the heroic age relatively intact. But it very nearly didn't end that way. His is a tale of survival that arguably matches Shackleton's and exceeds it in some aspects. A solo trek of over a hundred miles across Antarctica with no real rations in some of the windiest, coldest parts of the continent. And after that, a tale of madness, paranoia, mistrust and angst, cabin fever. Waiting for the rescue ship couldn't have been any closer. The terse but mangled and mixed dispatches over their wireless telegraph put the outside world on tenterhooks. It didn't shake out that way, though. As the old professor looks back over his storied career, he may wonder whether he could or should have done anything differently. But he thinks better of it. He was never in it for the fame. He was a man of science, far more than any of the ones we've looked at so far. He did, inadvertently, become an early symbol of what it even meant to be an Australian, but that wasn't his design. The piecemeal nature of the publishing of his papers isn't entirely his fault. Having also lived through both world wars, though not serving on the front, the priorities of the greater world and its scientific communities were preoccupied with the ever more prudent and military concerns. But though he outlived his contemporaries, he wouldn't live long enough to finish editing all of his work. His daughter would fill those shoes in, finishing finally in 1975, 62 years after his first return from Antarctica. Oh, that's right, this man isn't just a heroic age figure. He goes back in the mechanical age and makes even more groundbreaking research. Which goes to show you that that's really what he was in it for. The science. After the news stopped caring and the major achievements for achievement's sake were done, he was still going back. But what happened back there in Antarctica? February the 8th, 1913. A group of six men are waiting with bated breath in a tiny hut buffeted by some of the strongest winds in the world. They're part of the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. At this time, many in the British Empire see Australia as little more than a glorified southern outpost from which to extract wealth, a gold mine, nothing more. Those who live there have long sought to forge their own identities or protect the ones they already have from the efforts of their colonizers. From the Aborigines who saw a genocide ruthlessly perpetrated against them, to the convicts and rebels whose promises of freedom ended up another kind of indentured servitude in the squatocracy. Australia in 1911, when the expedition took off, was a land with much to prove to both itself and the outside world. These men are wondering what it is that they're proving here. Camaraderie, more than anything? 
They're sitting in this hut as their last lifeline to the outside world sails away into a storm, leaving them behind. The reason they're staying is their leader and his team are long missing, and they've decided to wait as long as they can to see if he'll show up. Everyone's assuming the worst, and the atmosphere is tense. But suddenly a shout. Three of the men are working outside when one of them spots a silhouette on the horizon. But it's far from what they'd hoped. The figure is alone, no dogs, and is in a bad as way as a man can be. It looks like little more than a walking corpse, his skin jaundiced and sallow. They won't see it until he takes his boots off, but they're the only things keeping the soles of his feet attached. Literally. But he survived. His two fellow explorers and all of their dogs were not so fortunate. Richard had started out well enough. The so-called Far Eastern Party, comprising himself, a young British officer, and a Swiss mountaineering champion, set off to explore the area that we now know as Adelaide They'd made good time and progress, until a disaster immediately changed their prospects from a heroic return to a fight for survival. The young officer had fallen with his sled and dogs and all into a crevasse. They never recovered his body, but they also never recovered the large amounts of supplies he was carrying. This meant that any hope of completing their original objective of mapping this area was gone. They now had to return home. Fast. But the two men faced an uphill battle. They had almost no food between them, and precious little fuel to cook on with or melt ice, as well as their main tent and a large amount of equipment being gone. The trek proved too much for even the mountaineer. Strong-willed and stoic, but suffering from his diet, which now comprised almost entirely husky meat from the dogs they were shooting. As his strength began to fail, he became angry and sullen, some days refusing to move at all and others flying into fits of rage. After his death, the lone survivor continued on. No dogs, no companions. The journey took over a month and followed a distance of over a hundred miles, avoiding death by mere inches at several turns. By the time he reached that small hut, he was on death's door. The soles of his feet had entirely come off. He was keeping them attached using wool grease and socks. Other areas were shedding skin at an alarming rate, and he had the usual symptoms of frostbite and snow blindness. But he survived. In fact, he later thanked the boat for not picking him up that day. He reckoned that he wouldn't have survived an ocean voyage. But if you thought that his ordeal was over, you got another thing coming. You see, this expedition was the first in the heroic age to use a wireless radio wave telegraph, cutting edge tech at the time, and they had themselves a new wireless operator in the hut. A newbie to the whole exploration deal, and things were getting a little tense. Remember those high winds? Well, they were what prevented the ship from turning around to collect them, and they buffeted that hut at all hours of the day, every day for the entire winter, topping out at 200 miles an hour. Some of the pictures taken of the men leaning into the wind just to stay upright should give you an image. The constant noise, the cold, the dark, the isolation. It took a toll on all of them, of course, but a change happened in the radio operator. On the 8th of June, the masts were brought down by high winds, cutting off their connection to the outside world. The same winds made it impossible to go outside for any serious work, so the men were stuck indoors. The radio man became moody and angry, he challenged men who were his friends to fistfights, or would retreat into himself, mumbling incoherently. He developed a persecution complex. Everything that happened that was bad was a slight against him, and he began to neglect his personal hygiene. Now, all of that was worrying, but what was even more alarming was what happened when they put the masts back up in the dead of winter. He began sending erratic and dark messages to the relay base on Macquarie Island. He insisted the others had all gone mad. They were trying to kill him. He was the only sane one left, and soon something would have to give. He was taken from the transmitter, but nobody else knew how to transmit Morse code. One of the others hurriedly learnt some and was able to correct the record, but from the other end, it must have generated a huge deal of suspicion as to what was actually happening on that tiny, isolated base. The next summer they returned home, Three years on the ice and two men lost later. Well, three, but we'll get to that. And the leader became a national hero for a good while. But beyond the boundless plains of Australia, he remained a relative unknown to the general public. Around the same time, if you recall, they were still mourning the hero Captain Scott and deciding whether they were for or against the victorious Amundsen. 
This despite the story of survival being described as Edmund Hillary, first man alongside Tenzig Norgay to summit Mount Everest, as the greatest of all time. We know his name, I'll be saying it a lot this episode. What of that wireless operator though? Well, he went home just fine actually. For a time. On the ship back, he recovered fairly quickly, almost as though nothing had happened at all. But that wasn't the case. Later that year, he was reported missing, and six days after that, he was found wandering the bush in a dazed state, having lived off scrub grass and stagnant water. His sanity was brought into question at a court, having been arrested for his psychotic break, hooray for 1900s mental health treatment, and from the dock, he issued a desperate, quiet plea that sent a chill down the courtroom's collective spines. Let me go back and die, where I have hidden my trunk in the silence of the ranges. He was committed to a mental hospital. We know he kept a limited contact with his erstwhile leader and friend, but he died in 1942 while still in care. Today we talk about the main man of this expedition, what it meant, and the effects it had on those participating in it and after it. We look at one of the lesser-known expeditions of the Heroic Age, though by the end I'm sure you'll agree that it does deserve far bigger recognition. Today on Demystified, we're talking about Douglas Mawson and his Australasian Antarctic expedition. So, now our basic plotline is laid out. Let's just dive straight into the characters. Douglas Mawson was born on the 5th of May 1882 in Yorkshire, but when he was less than two years old, his family emigrated to Australia. Now, Australia in the 1880s was undergoing its own Wild West period. While the gold rush of 1851 in Ballarat was the precipitating incident, boom towns were popping up all over the southern coast, and that family settled in Sydney. The outback was in the process of being tamed, but Australia was as rugged a frontier as nearly anywhere else in the world. The Flying Doctor Corps was founded in 1928, so before that, if you got injured in the Red Centre, there was precious little hope of ever seeing civilization again. But that untamed country was a far cry from the suburbs of Sydney that Mawson grew up in. He studied hard at school and received a bachelor's in engineering from the University of Sydney in 1902, when he was 20. His first hint of exploration was on a geological expedition in what is today called Vanuatu in the South Pacific, and soon he became a fairly well-known lecturer at the University of Adelaide, having studied under Professor Edgeworth David. David is important in this story, first and foremost because he was slightly better known in exploratory circles. In 1907, he was invited to join Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod expedition, which we've covered, and he brought along two of his former students, one of whom was Douglas Mawson. Moreover, David was one of the reasons that that expedition even happened. Remember Shackleton's financial problems? Well, David was one of the instrumental people in getting the Australian government to back it. So David and Mawson head south, intending to stay only a short while, but they soon become full-fledged members of the expedition. They also both end up making Antarctic history when they become some of the first to summit Mount Erebus, and some of the first to reach the location of the Southern Magnetic Pole. It's a resounding success for the Australians, and Mawson is now a bona fide Arctic explorer. This is also Mawson's first brush with crevasses and long overland journeys. That trek to the magnetic pole had been treacherous. Mawson had actually saved David from a fall into the crevasse. They were the ones whose aroma was overpowering when they returned, wearing the same clothes they'd set off in four months earlier. Mawson also gets his first taste of leadership here, too. When Professor David started to lose his mind on the trek, he was made temporary leader of that party, and it was his leadership that helped them find their way back when David was no longer able to meaningfully contribute to the group. That journey of 1,260 miles was, until the 80s, the world's longest unsupported sled journey. That was David's last trip to the Antarctic, but Mawson wasn't done yet. In fact, he decided that he was now qualified to lead his own expedition. Scott had offered him a place on Terra Nova, but he'd declined it. I wonder what Mawson thought when he found out about that. I couldn't find any statements, but was it sadness at his inability to help a fellow explorer, or gladness that he hadn't taken the offer and suffered the same fate? Either way, he lays out his plan for a geographical expedition, mapping and surveying vast quantities of some of the least well-explored areas of Antarctica. His funding is from the British and Australian governments, as well as some mining and whaling conglomerates who are looking to exploit the resources. Capitalism, I guess, so let's deduct some points from Douglas Captain Science Mawson. 
The mineral exploitation of Antarctica never came to fruition, though, as expeditions like his would prove that permanent habitation on Antarctica was basically impossible. We'll get back to that at the end of the show. Helping him out with the organisation of this is Edgeworth Davis, now an Australian venerable academic whose research committee helps the funding. In the planning stage, we get one of the first fateful decisions. You see, this was before Scott died, so when Scott's plan was to make for Cape Adair with the Northern Party, Mawson moved his base far to the west in what is today Adeliland, which was at this point basically uncharted. This comes into play later. Their ship is the SY Aurora, which will become famous for an entirely different expedition next week. Still, it's a fine and fit vessel, another former whaler, bought for the sum of £6,000. His captain is John King Davis, who had been on Shackleton's latest venture and accepted the proposal to join Mawson in an instant. Mawson and Shackleton had worked together, and Shackleton helped organise some of the finance for this one. It seems that the two had a pretty healthy respect for each other. They had hoped to get a purpose-built ship, but the refit they did was ample for their scientific aims. Cutting-edge oceanographic machines, a small monoplane for aerial reconnaissance, which was later turned into a sled after a crash, and the bell of the ball, the wireless telegraph machines, which would use radio waves to send telegraph signals without a telegraph cable. This was the first one in Antarctica, and its introduction would mean no more long waiting periods where you had no idea what was going on. Or so they hoped. The reality was a little different, but the base they'd established on Macquarie Island is still used to this day for research, so they definitely broke new ground there. His crew was well selected. One of the early choices was Frank Wilde, the oldest resident of Antarctica, as he was often called, who had participated in five of the Heroic Ages expeditions and had turned down Scott's offer due to personal disagreements. The crew in total numbered 90 on the whole payroll, and we'll mention some notables here. Francis Bickerton was an aviator, supposed to fly the plane, but after the crash became a sled maintenance guy. Frank Hurley was their photographer. His photography and cinematography would later prove vital for Shackleton's expedition and the recording of it. Javier Mertz was a Swiss mountaineer, skier, and alpinist who had distinguished himself in international competition. Whilst Mawson had intended to take only Brits and Australians, Mertz's application was just too good to turn down, and Mawson was also a big fan of skis as transportation. He saw the value in a ski expert. Finally, we have Belgrave Ninnis. Ninnis was a young army officer in the Royal Fusiliers whose father had been an Arctic explorer. At the age of 24, when the expedition launched, he was one of the younger members, the youngest being only 19. I couldn't find an exact reason for why Ninnis was brought, other than he went to the same school as Shackleton, so that would have got a recommendation, and his dad was an explorer, but he did want to go. He was appointed as the handler of the sled dogs jointly with Mertz, and though neither had any experience with that particular role, Davis was far from pleased with their performances, the two men became fast friends, and we'll touch on that in a little bit. On the 28th of July 1911, the Aurora departed Hobart in Tasmania for Macquarie Island, which, by the way, is about halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica. The passage was rough. Those dangerous southern seas didn't let up, and a number of the dogs on deck nearly drowned. On the 13th of December, they reached Macquarie Island and a detachment of men were dropped off. They'd be the ones to set the relay up and man it, and do further research on that base. On Christmas Eve, they continued southward, and their support ship, the Taroa, headed back to Hobart, but they ran into an immediate problem. The area they were sailing to, the west of Cape Adair, was so badly charted that the maps they did have, which dated from the 1840s, were basically completely wrong. They found themselves constantly unable to make landings due to ice sheets miles thick, and so continued onwards. Eventually, they find a way through, and decided to put their main base at a place named Cape Denison after one of their sponsors. What they didn't know at the time was that the catabatic winds at Cape Denison, which as we discussed earlier, are when heavy air is forced downwards, creating a high-powered cold wind. Those catabatic winds are some of the most powerful and persistent in the entire world. This will be relevant. A clue to this eventuality were the constant storms that delayed their landings and departures. Eventually, on the 19th of January, Wilde and the Western Party went off to set up their base, leaving most of the rest of the crew behind at the main base. Now, they did score a winner with the hut. It was spacious for an Antarctic base, with an attached workshop and wide storage area for the dogs and equipment. This would be good, because they would be spending a lot of time inside of it because of the winds. Mawson's recordings from that first winter frequently logged speeds between 150 and 180 miles an hour, and with coastal storms and localised whirlwinds, the men were constantly battered when they tried to do their work. Battered by winds, that is. That winter was spent doing the preliminary planning for the summer's trips, 
as was his usual modus operandi. They didn't manage to get their wireless set up until August, however, and even then the connection was spotty at best. The radio waves experienced a fair amount of interference due to the magnetism that far south. By October, the winds had brought the mast back down again. This would be a pattern that would repeat throughout this expedition. Mast goes up, mast goes down. Merton Ninnis had headed out to set up a sled depot and a relay base, and had decided upon a cave of wonders. No, really, it was so full of crystal shards that it glimmered in the light like a cave full of gemstones, so they called it Aladdin's Cave. And Merton and Ninnis were very close by this time. I don't want to speculate on the nature of their relationship, it's not my place to do so, but I'll let the expedition's taxidermist Charles Lazarin have this to say. Quote, the two had joined the expedition together in London, and had been associated longer and in a more intimate manner than any other members of the expedition. During the winter months, we all had been drawn together, but between Mertz and Ninnis there existed a very deep bond. Mertz, in his warm-hearted, impulsive way, had practically adopted Ninnis, and his affection was almost maternal. Ninnis, less demonstrative, reciprocated this to the full, and indeed it was hard to disassociate them in our thoughts. It was always Mertz and Ninnis or Ninnis and Mertz, a composite entity, each the complement of the other. End quote. I'll let you decide for yourselves. What I will say is that let's call them deep affections that go beyond the auspices of what you would call friendship have been known to form on expeditions like this. Hell, it's a stereotype of the Navy, right? So before you go saying, oh, well, we can't impose our modern whatever, men loved other men back then too. And there's every chance that this bond was romantic in nature rather than platonic. If that's what it was, we don't have any concrete evidence for that, I should point out. So we can't go assuming, but we also can't go not assuming. Happy Pride Month, everybody. On the 27th October, the plans were laid out. One party would take sledges south, making magnetic observations and charting the landscape. One party would head east to map the coast, and another would go west with the motorised sledges to explore the plateaus there. Finally, the far eastern party would undertake the longest journey. Composed of Mawson, Mertz and Ninnis, they would head 560 kilometres to attempt to reach Oates's land, a region of Antarctica. Everybody else would be support parties, and everybody was going to meet back at base camp by the 15th of January 1913, whereupon the Aurora would return and collect them. Easy money. Because of the limited time, we'll have focusing on the Far Eastern Party. If you'd have guessed, and if you recall from the introduction, it doesn't go well. The goal was to chart the territory, which they'd named King George V Land, take samples of geological items and fossils, and claim the area for the crown. As much as this was a scientific expedition, more so than the others, there was still that degree of old-school jingoism, more point deductions, bad Mawson. Now, the reason that Mertz and Ninnis were going on this team is because they were the dog handlers. They'd spent the winter training the dog teams and making harnesses and doing a pretty good job of it. A better job, it seems, than on the ship, anyway. Because of the serious distances needed covering, Mawson wanted to go as fast as possible, and in 1912, the fastest way across Antarctica was with Greenland Huskies. They left base camp on the 10th of November, four days delay caused by bad weather. It took them four hours to reach Aladdin's cave. Make a note of how quick that is, with good weather and sleds. And they were accompanied in part by another support team for this leg of the journey. They rearranged the sleds and supplies, and this is important to note. The first dog team hauled two sledges with half the supplies, and the second team had one sledge with a third of the supplies, rounding for brevity. Between the 13th and the 17th, progress was slow. The winds got so bad that they were confined to their tent for three days, and at one point they couldn't even light the stove. But on the 17th, they were off, and in the afternoon, separated away from the support team. Between the 17th and the 24th, they made decent progress, picking their way through what would become known as the Mertz Glacier. The whole place was riddled with crevasses, and they developed a strategy for encountering them after some close calls. The guy at the front, on skis, would cross the snow covering the crevasse, and once across, the first of the two dog teams would follow. Only after the first dog team was across would the second follow. Despite this, Ninnis ended up falling into no less than three crevasses, one time after they pitched their tent on the edge of one. After Mawson took a tumble, they started tying themselves to their sledges as a precaution. This will come up later. They'd lost three dogs. One to an illness, one put down after breaking a leg, and a third to a crevasse. On the 27th, they started on what would become known as the Ninnis Glacier. The whole trip was difficult, bad conditions underfoot, the winds not letting up, but in spite of the constant blizzards confining them to tents for days at a time, they were actually doing pretty decently in terms of their overall schedule. But Ninnis was starting to suffer. He had neuralagia, a nerve pain on the left side of his face, and an infection in one of his fingers. 
He soldiered on, although Mawson lanced the infection, and on the evening of that day, the 13th of December, they pitched down to rest. Here's where things start to go wrong. One of their sledges was damaged at the point that it was slowing them down, so Mawson and Mertz decided to scrap it. The rest of the supplies get redistributed, but done so to favour the rear sledge. The logic was this. The most likely sledge to go down a crevasse is the lead sledge, the one in front, hence their prior strategy. So by consolidating the heaviest items and the strongest dogs on the rear sledge, they'd be able to test out the ice with the lead sledge and then bring the rear one once it was safe. At that camp, they'd left a few supplies and then they headed out again on the 14th. By this time, they'd covered 311 miles from the base camp of the planned 560 and they had a running order. Mertz was at the front on his skis, blazing the trail. Mawson was on the lead sledge, remember, the supposedly more vulnerable one, and Nierce was walking beside the second sledge. I'll allow Mertz's diary to explain what happened next. Quote, Around 1pm, I crossed a crevasse, similar to the hundred previous ones we had passed during the last weeks. I cried out, Crevasse! Moved at a right angle and went forward. Around five minutes later, I looked behind. Mawson was following, looking at his sledge in front of him, but I couldn't see Ninnis, so I stopped to have a better look. Mawson turned round to know the reason I was looking behind me. He immediately jumped out of his sledge and rushed back. When he nodded his head, I followed him, driving his sledge. End quote. When they went to look, they found a crevasse, 11 feet across, and descending seemingly infinitely downwards. 150 feet below them was a ledge, on which they could see two of the dogs, one dead, and one on death's door. No sign of Ninnis. Ninnis, his sledge, and the six strongest dogs had fallen over 150 feet down the crevasse, along with everything on it. They called out for Ninnis for three hours with no response. It was too far down for the ropes to reach, so they couldn't descend to look for him. They went to go take readings and returned an hour later before spending another hour calling. When there was no response, Mawson gave a burial service for the man who was either pretty clearly dead or as good as. You'd hope the fool killed him quickly. You wouldn't want to be down there, able to hear your friends but unable to respond, and even if you could, if you can't stand, they can't rescue you. What a terrible situation. On an emotional level, Mawson and Mertz had lost a friend. For Mertz, Ninnis was his best friend, and the blow had hit hard, as you might imagine. On a practical level, however, the situation was somehow even worse than that. Mawson and Mertz were now, in a word, fucked. They had no hope of making their objective, and they unanimously agreed to turn around and head for home. Along with Ninnis and the best dogs, they'd also lost their heavy weather tent, most of their food, all of the dog food, their pickaxe, their shovel, and Mertz's waterproof clothing. They had with them their sleeping bags, their stove and fuel, thankfully, ten days' worth of food. That was it. That was their deadline before things started getting... difficult. Racing back to the previous supplies, they hastily erected a shelter after covering in five hours what had taken two days to do. It was a real race against time. Remember, no tent, only sleeping bags so they really had to make a rush. Once at a temporary shelter, they had two options. Option A, head north to the coast. There, they could hunt for seals and try to meet the party they'd left earlier in the journey and go back together. The problem with this was it would add an enormous distance to the overall journey and was contingent on meeting that party. Option B was to go south of their current position, avoid most of the crevasses and try and race back to Cape Denison to go for broke. This did mean they would have to shoot and eat their dogs as they had no other food source and would not make it back before their own food ran out, let alone the food for the dogs that they didn't have. They travelled at night after raising a flag to claim the land, a gesture that seems kind of pointless today, but you have to remember the culture of the time. Nighttime was colder, but the harder snow meant better speed. The first dog was shot on the first day, named George, and fed to both the men and the dogs. Over the next few days, however, they'd lose two more, Johnson and Mary, as the starving dogs were performing badly and quickly becoming weak. Now, Mawson and Mertz found the dog meat almost too tough to eat, Mertz especially, so they focused on eating the livers. Note that down. Despite having to participate in pulling the sledge, they made good time, and by the 21st of December, they'd made it back to the Ninnis Glacier. They also shot and killed Haldane, once their largest dog, for more food. Five goes down to two. Now the men were both suffering badly, but Mertz had the worst of it. The loss of the waterproofs meant that his wet wool clothes couldn't dry out properly and he was badly afflicted by the subsequent cold. Moreover, 
We know today that the liver of the Greenland husky is extremely packed with vitamin A. As Mertz was having a harder time eating the main flesh of the husky, Mawson may have prioritised giving the more tender and tasty livers to Mertz, unknowingly triggering hypervitaminosis A, which caused Mertz and Mawson to a lesser extent to become seriously ill. On the 3rd of January, Mertz was in such a bad shape between frostbite, dysentery, skin problems, hair loss, and skin loss, they had to stop and camp despite making good time. On the 6th, they tried to set out again, but Mertz collapsed on the ice and they had to camp once more. By this time, Mertz was facing the final curtain. He was delirious, and despite Mawson trying to pull him on a sledge, his condition was so bad he couldn't go any longer. Of Mertz's final hours, Mawson writes, quote, He is very weak, becomes more and more delirious, rarely being able to speak coherently. He will eat or drink nothing. At 8pm he raves and breaks a trent pole. Continues to rave and call, Ove, Ove, for hours. I hold him down, and he becomes more peaceful, and I put him quietly in the bag. He dies peacefully, at about 2am on the morning of the 8th. End quote. The cause of death is not exactly known. Probably a combination of hypervitaminosis A, frostbite, malnutrition, all combined with the psychological stress of both the journey ahead of them, which would have seemed impossible from their position, and the loss of Ninnis. With Mertz's death, Mawson now faced the final 100 miles back to Cape Denison alone. They'd killed the last dog, Ginger, on the 29th of December. On the 11th of January, he steeled himself for that final trek, after taking the time to make repairs to his sledge and burying Mertz in a cairn of stones. What follows is a survival story of Herculean proportions. He'd made it two miles before severe pain stopped him in his feet. Checking them, he realised that the soles of his feet had literally separated in a clean layer from the rest of his body, the underside now being little more than weeping cysts. So he soaked his feet in wool grease and used several pairs of socks to keep the soles attached, for whatever good it would do him. His body was suffering from total malnutrition, was beginning to rot whilst he was alive. His mouth produced no saliva, he had no mucus in his nose, each cold breath went down unfiltered. His skin was starting to peel off and his fingertips were becoming frostbitten and festering. I apologise for the graphicness of this description, but this man was literally a walking corpse. Still, he made about five miles a day started on crossing the Mertz Glacier. His journey nearly came to an end on the 17th of January. He plunged straight into a crevasse. But remember those ropes they used to tie themselves to the sledges? Well, the sledge caught. By a stroke of luck, which Mawson would call providence, the crevasse was just too narrow for the sledge to go down, and him being tied to it prevented him from falling to his death. It took him hours to claw his way back to the mouth of the crevasse. He was bleeding from the fingers by the time he got there, but he survived. After this, he decided to take the extra precaution of making a rope ladder for himself, which in an act of laser-guided positive karma pays off almost instantly over the next few days, when he saves himself from two more crevasses with that rope ladder. Smart cookie. By the 29th of January, his luck turns up. He finds a message, Cairn, with a note from a rescue team, Archibald Lang McLean, the doctor, Frank Hurley, and the cartographer Alfred Hodgman have left him some food and a message that they'd been sent to search for the Far Eastern party. Of course, none of them knew that it was just Mawson. The node also helped him navigate. He was 21 miles southeast of Aladdin's cave and two more food depots. They also told him that everybody else was back safe and that Roald Amundsen had claimed the South Pole, of which they were now aware. In an act of tantalising closeness, Mawson was just six hours behind the search team. They returned swiftly, of course, but for Mawson, his odyssey continued. On his rotting and injured feet, he made Aladdin's cave in three days. Here he took on some much-needed fresh fruit, but found no spare crampons which were necessary to get back to the hut from his position. So MacGyver Mawson fashioned some out of every available nail hammered into the wood from some packing crates. For all of his possible faults, this is not a man who wants for either tenacity or ingenuity. On the 8th of February, he completes his descent and is spotted by the three men outside the hut and is finally safe. For now. Back with the main expedition, everybody had reported in safe before the January deadline, but the absence of the leader and the team was clear to see. Obviously something was wrong. Captain Davis had sailed east to try to find them, but couldn't. Now, they were getting worried that any more delays would render them stuck in the ice, which would leave a larger-than-expected complement of men stuck with less food than anticipated in a tricky situation. 
So a handful of hours before Mawson makes it back to the hut, the Aurora departs, leaving a six-man relief team. Archie McLean, Francis Bickerton, the aviator, Edward Bage, the astronomer, Alfred Hodgman, the architect, Cecil Madigan, the meteorologist, and a new man, Sidney Jeffries, brought as a replacement telegraph operator for the man being relieved. Again, Mawson credits arriving late with his overall survival. He and the others reckoned that if they'd tried to take him on an ocean voyage in his condition, especially in the tumultuous southern seas, he might not have ever made it back. They do signal the return of the ship, and the ship does try to return. But the wind and waves are too bad to make a landing, and after trying for several hours, the pressure of being frozen in becomes too much and they leave. The seven men are now overwintering on Antarctica once more. And here's where things get really scary. Mawson has survived the journey of near-impossible proportions, having lost two of his good friends. If you look at the photo from the day he got back, his thousand-yard stare tells you everything you need to. They name the two glaciers now, for Mertz and Ninnis in their memories. That second winter sees him slowly but surely recover, as despite the constant intense winds, they settle into the winter routine of scientific observation, and their radio works most of the time, so regular contact with Macquarie Station, and thus news of the outside world, is a new luxury that they enjoy. But something's off with Jeffries, the telegraph operator. It's his first winter in Antarctica. He's fairly new to radio telegraphy as it is. He brought with him some great new tech. That one year difference had been huge. And that was a plus. And they had needed to replace the outgoing operator due to both personal disagreements between Mawson and Walter Hannum, the ex-operator, and a contractual failure due to the scarcity of updates. At first, things go great. Jeffries had met Mawson when he was almost dead from malnutrition and frostbite, but Mawson was admiring the man's work ethic. He really was a consumer professional, and his recordings really did produce a lot of research. A shame about the closeness of the pole, meaning that the magnetic forces are constantly messing with all the transmissions, though. On top of that, it seems that sometimes Jeffries is taking his job a little too seriously. As the winds pick up and the sun goes down for the dark Antarctic winter, the men are confined to the hut. Now, all of them have heard stories of the Belgica, so they know that the Antarctic dark can make a man go mad. But this place is different entirely. The wind never ends, howling, buffeting. A strange kind of silence fills the hut. And slowly, but surely, Jeffries gets paranoid. Starting sometime mid-June, he gets moody, challenging the others to fights or sulking alone. But Jeffries is the only man who knows how to use a radio, so he's still invaluable as their only link to the outside world. Mawson begins encouraging Bickerton to learn Morse code on the side as quickly as possible. Then it starts to seem as though things are getting better. The temporary reprieve was halted when they caught Jeffries sending frantic, insane messages to the Macquarie Island relay. Jeffries, it seems, had been hiding his condition. He now believed that everyone, with the possible exception of Mawson, was part of a vast criminal conspiracy to murder him, and he was the only sane man left. With Bickerton's amateur skills, they got a message through to censor all communications from Jeffries. But imagine being the guy on Macquarie Island who has to relay those messages to Australia. Who do you believe? I guess with Jeffries' messages becoming increasingly frantic and frayed, you would assume that they would believe Mawson, and that's how it seems to have played out. But you might have that lingering doubt. If Jeffries is coming through with his Morse code saying please help me, they're all going to try and kill me. And then somebody else says, everything's fine, don't believe what Jeffries says. Wouldn't it make you wonder? Jeffries did regain his sanity briefly in a moment of lucidity and requested to be relieved of his post. Mawson appoints Bickerton to the role. On the 24th of December 1913, the Aurora, now with its wayward stragglers, heads for home. Aside from Mawson's group, there was also the Western Party under Frank Wilde, which had spent their time conducting vast amounts of research on everything from magnetism to meteorology, geology to cartography, basically an ideal scientific trip to the Antarctic. After a brief scare that the ship wouldn't come for them, they left in February of 1913 for home, all men accounted for. Finally, there was a lot of Macquarie Island. They'd spent their time erecting the wireless station and making all kinds of meteorological and oceanographical reports to Sydney. They were replaced by a permanent team of scientists from Australia in February of 1913, after a brief scare of their own regarding sea conditions, and that the base on Macquarie Island still exists and is active to this day. So what became of Douglas Mawson and his crew? Well, he got back to Australia on the 26th of February 1914 to major fanfare and applause. In Adelaide, the crowds were out in form and Mawson had a honeymoon period of unimaginable good tidings. 
He got married to his fiancée quickly, went to London to give lecturers and visit Ninnis' parents. He was received at Marlborough House by the Queen Mother and the Dowager Empress of Russia and was knighted by the King himself. But this didn't last long. When he got back to Australia, he was faced with the enormous debts of the expedition which would plague him for years to come. He had planned to sell the Aurora and its artefacts to the Australian government for £15,000, enough to cover the debts and then some, but they turned him down. He sold the ship to Shackleton for a fifth of that price, then tried to use his memoir, Home of the Blizzard, as well as Hurley's films to make the difference. But the outbreak of the First World War delayed the publication of that, and shifting public attention towards the war caused sales to be a little disappointing. Part of the reason the scientific reports take until 1947 to get done is because they never really had the time or the funding to get them all done at once. Of the crew, two die in the First World War. Edward Bage dies at Gallipoli in 1915, and Leslie Blake, the Macquarie Gang's cartographer, dies of wounds in 1918. Mawson spent his war working for the Department of Munitions. Mawson goes back to the Antarctic in 1929 in what's now termed the Mechanical Age of Antarctic Exploration as the leader of the Banzair, British-Australian-New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition, along with John Davis and Frank Hurley. Hurley and Davis both accompany Shackleton on the subject of next week's episode, so no spoilers. Frank Wilde also goes with Shackleton on his final journey, but again, spoilers. Two days after arriving in Adelaide, Sidney Jeffries took a train bound for Toowoomba, his family home. But he never made it. A month later, he was found near Stowell in Victoria, wandering around in the bush. He was delirious, having survived off of whatever he could find in the hinterlands, and was taken to a court to have it be decided what was to be done with him. There he makes his strange, enigmatic plea. Let me go back and die where I have hidden my trunk in the silence of the ranges. He spent the next year in asylums, but after an assault on a member of the staff, he was committed to a criminal asylum in Ararat, where he died in 1942, having been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia during his time. His family criticised Mawson for a lack of care and sympathy. They wrote him numerous letters, apparently without response. We do know that as of 1915, Mawson was being kept up to date. But 1915 to 1942 is a very long time. In 2010, Jeffries gets a glacier named after him in the Australian Antarctic Territory, and in 2018 he gets a plaque in the Ararat Cemetery, near the site of his unmarked grave. So, what's there to be said about Douglas Mawson? Well, first things first, he's a man made of goddamn titanium. For all his faults, he never gave in and never abandoned his friends. As far as we know. Accounts of cannibalism that circulated in the immediate aftermath were discredited very quickly, and they don't make any sense, especially since A, Mertz was sick when he died, so eating him was a bad idea, and B, Mawson had edible food, but the accusation that Mawson might have killed Mertz for his food rations is disproven by Mawson's account alone. I don't think it's likely, given that Mawson spent several days trying to keep Mertz alive, but I guess we'll never really know. But from what I've gleaned of Mawson, from his reputation before and after this, it seems really unlikely. But his tenacity and resourcefulness are only to be admired. Every time he comes to a new challenge, he meets it. No shelter? Build one. No food? Find some. Sorry, sled dogs. No crampons? Make some. Crevasses getting you down? Build a rope ladder. Feet falling apart in front of you? Wax and wool. He attributed much of his survival to what he termed providence, i.e. divine intervention, and you might be able to see where he's coming from given the lucky crevasse escape. But, for an atheist like me, and honestly, in general, his will to survive and capacity for problem solving seemed to be what really kept him alive. In terms of the rest of his reputation, it seems to have generally stood the test of time. His motivations were scientific. Yes, he did do some claiming for king and country, but not to a perverse degree, at least not on that expedition. And all of his parties had a clear goal and purpose to serve, and each generated serious amounts of good data and research. It was a scientific expedition that ended up being overshadowed by two very much more emotional ones, Amundsen and Scott. He was, for the most part, successful. Every team except his achieved basically all of their goals and made it back home safely. We'll get to Jeffries in a bit. But let's look at his team. First off, can we blame Mawson for the deaths of Ninitz and Mertz? I don't think so. Ninitz's death wasn't really anyone's fault. If you do want to blame Mawson, you could argue putting the heavy sledge second is a bad idea because maybe the strain from the first sledge weakens the crevasse, 
but putting your nest egg on the first untested sled is also a bad idea. So it's kind of a no-win scenario, a real Kobayashi Maru. According to the logic that they were using at the time, Mawson put himself on what should have been the more dangerous sled. Ninnis just got unlucky, basically. Some have speculated that his walking alongside the sledge had an effect on weight dispersal that caused the collapse. I don't know enough about crevasses to make a definitive statement there, but as far as I can tell, it was just wrong place, wrong time. As for Mertz's death, well, let's take a look. Mertz and Mawson are both eating the husky livers, but Mertz is eating more of them. Neither man knows that they're being poisoned by this. Neither of them. Now, did Mawson make Mertz eat the livers? Probably, but not maliciously. The livers were the best tasting and easiest to eat bits, so Mawson gave Mertz more liver because Mertz was sick and struggling. Paradoxically though, if we take that Mertz died of hypervitaminosis A, this was actually killing him faster. But again, I do not think that was intentional. We also have to consider that Mertz was already on the back foot after losing Ninnis, and he also had no waterproofs, which was causing him to develop hypothermia and frostbite. Could Mawson have shared his waterproofs? Probably not. Even if they fit, you'd just have one wet man wearing waterproofs over wet clothes and one wet man with no waterproofs. Should they have gone north instead? Debatable. We do know that the Aurora went looking for them, but if it hadn't found them, which given the bad conditions out at sea was a reasonable assumption, they'd have been even further away. Now, the seal meat might have saved Mertz, or it might not. If we take hypervitaminosis A as the main cause of his death, if he had eaten more seal meat than husky meat, he might have been able to avoid dying of the hypervitaminosis. But we also have to consider the other things that killed Mertz. The perpetual cold problems, which wouldn't have been solved by going north, and in fact would have been exacerbated, and the fact that from Mawson's perspective, well, he wouldn't have been second-guessing himself when he was walking back home. He must have thought, if he'd have gone north, he'd have never made it back, because again, much longer distance. So, Mawson mostly makes it through the history books unscathed. With some exceptions, I should point out, criticising his planning and his leadership, especially the choice of where he ended up building his base, I mean, that is... You can call it bad luck, you can call it planning, but Cape Denison is a 0 out of 10 on TripAdvisor. Would not go again. But, as well as being unscathed, Mawson gets out unremembered. The reasons for that are pretty obvious. Between two other far more interesting to the public at the time Antarctic stories from the living Victor Amundsen and the dead hero Scott, Mawson's predominantly scientific expedition was overshadowed. In fact, if it hadn't been for his insane solo trek and the incident in the winter, I probably would have chosen a different expedition for this episode. Mawson was on the $100 bill in a while for Australia, plus he's got some stamps, along with a hiking trail here, a theatrical production there, you know, the basic sort of explorer honours. I guess if he had a legacy in the short term, it was the hangovers in terms of personnel and equipment to Shackleton. Mawson's second voyage on the Banzer expedition was a little more disappointing to me. Large parts of it simply consisted of sticking a flag in bits of Antarctica to claim it for Britain, and those claims then transferring to Australia after its independence. So I guess now is as good a time as any to talk about the territorial claims of Antarctica, that last holdover from the heroic age. So, during and after World War II, with the start of the Cold War, numerous countries start looking at Antarctica more seriously for its strategic value. Despite permanent habitation still being a pipe dream, it's no longer so insane to consider building perhaps a military installation down there. The US even carried out Antarctic training in 1947, and in 1953, well, I'll read directly from the wiki on this. Quote, on January the 17th, 1953, Argentina reopened the Lieutenant La Sala refuge on Deception Island, leaving a sergeant and a corporal of the Argentine Navy. On the 15th of February, the incident on Deception Island, 32 Royal Marines landed from the British frigate HMS Snipe armed with Sten guns, rifles and tear gas and captured the two Argentine sailors. The Argentine refuge and a nearby uninhabited Chilean shelter were then destroyed, and the Argentine sailors were delivered to a ship from that country on the 18th of February in the South Georgia Islands. End quote. A British detachment remained for three months on the island while the frigate patrolled the waters until April. So, to prevent further escalations and dick-measuring contests, as well as the very real possibility that some moron would try and store nuclear weapons down there, the Antarctic Treaty System was brought into place in 1961 to consolidate a whole bunch of bilateral and trilateral treaties already present. Basically, the 12 countries present in Antarctica, meaning that they either had been researching or were researching, at the time made an agreement, 
Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and the United States. All of these countries agree that Antarctica belongs to nobody and to work together to establish research bases, 55 in total between those 12 of the 70 that exist. But that's not entirely true, because each of those countries has some vested territorial interest in Antarctica. Seven of them actively claim territory, and two of them, the USA and Russia, reserve the right to make a claim at some point. The land between 90 degrees and 150 degrees west is unclaimed. Those countries with research bases administer them as though they were their territory, and some countries, the UK, Argentina and Chile, have overlapping claims. Germany and Japan have historical claims, and Brazil is considered to have an unofficial claim. The general rule of thumb is that Antarctica is what's called the common heritage of mankind. Like the moon and the solar system, nobody actually owns it, and many countries refuse to acknowledge the territorial claims that others make. Case in point, the UK, Argentina and Chile all disagree with each other's claims, pretty much. And a lot of other countries that have not ratified this treaty don't recognise any claims. Aside from a few news-grabbing efforts like Argentina having a child born on Antarctic soil, there's basically no way to actually enforce a claim. Pissing match moves like the Brits did in the 50s are far too expensive to do on the regular, unless I guess you're America, and they're basically pointless. Even if you could claim it, you can't settle it, and existing treaties allow other countries to set up research bases, it's bold men fighting over a comb. Unless, of course, Global warming continues at its current rate. When the ice recedes, who knows what we might find down there? H.P. Lovecraft thought of hidden cities and ancient monstrosities in old mountains, and John Carpenter adapted an earlier adaptation of a book that suggested a shape-shifting alien might be buried beneath the snow, but the scariest thing to me would be to find oil or rare earth metals. Then countries might start puffing their chests out a little more seriously. We've already seen how Canada and Russia are eyeing up the Northwest Passage, infamously a deadly and inefficient sea route, a byword for hubris. As the pack ice thins every year, people are taking this a little more seriously. I said we'd talk Sidney Jeffries, and we will. What happened to him is a sad case of the forgotten casualties of the heroic age. The man lost his mind, no small thing to lose, and unlike Mertz and Ninnis, he doesn't get into most accounts of the expedition. His family had a right to be mad. From their perspective, it was Mawson's fault. He chose the location of the base, which was bad. He was the one who took too long to get back. He was the leader who was supposed to keep them safe. I do try not to overhype those aspects of history that are, in retrospect, sensitive, although I confess I may have done so in this episode. But it is important to remember that this was a real person who really did spend nearly 30 years in an asylum because of what he underwent in Antarctica. And on that sobering but important note... We close the book, for now at least on Douglas Mawson and the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Join us next time for the conclusion of the season with a survival story that might just outdo this one. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.